So I, I closed on a house recently, and money's a bit tight for me now, as you might expect. But then the other day, I got a check back from my lawyer for seven bucks. We laughed about it, uh, given how much we'd spent, but it still felt so good. It was like, you know, finding a $5 bill in your pocket when you're doing laundry. Well, with Sea Power Energy Management, you're going to capture that feeling all the time. And the checks you get back are going to be a heck of a lot bigger than seven bucks. They're going to be really big because, you know, Sea Power is cutting you checks for doing all the right things with energy management. Sea Power helps utilize your energy assets in demand side management programs to help the grid. And that gives organizations a customized energy strategy in open energy markets, helping them reach their green goals and earn those green backs. Seriously, your accounting department is going to track you down and give you a big hug. Leverage your organization's existing energy resources, enhance your sustainability efforts, and contribute to a balanced, reliable grid with CPower Energy Management. Find out more at CPowerEnergyManagement.com. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, a weekly digest on energy, clean tech, and the environment. I'm Stephen Lacey. Welcome. Did you know that Jigger Shaw can climb a flight of stairs with roller skates? Or that his spirit animal is a hippo? More importantly, do you know how Jigger Shaw co-founded Sun Edison and why he left the company? Why he thinks Goldman Sachs is the dumbest board member of all time? And why cleantech entrepreneurs are taking really dumb money? Well, you're about to find out. We've got an episode of What It Takes this week, and Jigger Shaw is the guest. You hear him regularly on this show every week, but there's uh, a lot you don't know about him. And in this conversation with powerhouse CEO Emily Kirsch, we peel back his career and his philosophy on entrepreneurship. What It Takes is a partnership between Powerhouse and GTM. Powerhouse is the leading seed fund and co-working space for intelligent energy startups, and they are based in Oakland, California, a really cool organization. We're proud to partner with them. And in What It Takes, Emily Kirsch sits down with successful entrepreneurs to hear about how they build their companies and their careers. For those who've been listening to this podcast for a long time, this is uh, an extra treat because now you get to learn a little bit more about what makes our co-host Jigger Shaw tick. And if you don't know about his background, then you'll understand why he's so passionate about the energy transition, to put it one way, and why he communicates it the way he does. Uh, Emily Kirsch takes it away. Enjoy this conversation. Um, so there's some people who you can imagine as a child. Jigger, for me, you are not one of those people. Like, it's hard to imagine you. <laughs> it's hard to imagine you as a kid. So tell me about little Jigger. Where were you born and what were you like? Oh, uh, wow. Um, well, thanks for having me. This is great. I um, So my parents uh, came to this country on one of those sort of visa programs. My dad's a physician. And... Um, my mom actually went back to India to have me, so I'm sort of the opposite of an anchor baby, um, which is probably a derogatory term around here. Um, I, um, and so I was born in India, so I wasn't a U.S. citizen, and um, grew up there for like a year and then came over here, and then when my brother was born, we went back for a year, and uh, so I was there for a year and then came back. Um, so it, it was sort of a more unconventional uh, upbringing. I, you know, I'd say that the thing about being born um, to immigrant parents, particularly from India, is that like the the whole like sort of 
rules around safety are very weird. So like growing up, like I don't know that my mom cared all that much for my safety. Like, <laughs> like, so I used to do really weird things. Like I remember we grew up in, um, in Chicago Ridge where my dad was doing his residency and uh, um, the downstairs basement was a uh, concrete floor. And so where they, um, where the laundry machines were. So when my mom did laundry, we would like, she would slap on roller skates, I'd roller skate down there. And then um, I'd still want to roller skate. And so she'd come upstairs and I'd only make it up with roller skates on like, like two flights of stairs. And then I'd get tired and go to sleep on the staircase. And then, um, and then someone would like pick me up and take me home. Um, so, but I, I still did ended up like growing up with my original parents, but mm-hmm. like um, it was touch and go there for a second. That's good, that's good. Um, tell us a bit about high school days and then what you were up to in college. Yeah, so my dad um, moved us to rural Illinois. It was pretty common in the 70s where Indian doctors would take jobs that nobody else wanted in rural areas. And um, so he practiced in a town of 800 people, and then we lived in a town of around um, 10,000. Um, it, was, it was really interesting. So the town that I grew up in, Sterling, Illinois, um, once hosted the seventh largest steel mill in the country. Um, and so we had all of these like platinum plated infrastructure projects, right? Like whether it was like 27 ten- tennis courts for only a town of like 10,000 or we had like these great park districts or whatever else. But like it was all like going downhill at the time that I grew up. So the, the steel mill was shutting mm-hmm. down and like all those things were occurring. Many of these ghosts have like come back to haunt us mm-hmm. in 2016. Um, but but like it was such a great place to grow up, right? Because mm-hmm. there was like the family that owned the steel mill and they were the big benefactor of the town. And so like the town had all these things, but we were really small. And so everybody knew each other. And so it was a great place to grow up. It was one of those places where you didn't lock your doors and all that stuff. Um, so yeah, the, I, I learned later that my high school education was horrible. <laughs> um, but um, I didn't know it. I think I did okay coming mm-hmm. out of high school, so. Were you, were you aware of how white the community was that you were in, not being white, or was that not an issue as a child? So it was a really weird thing. So um, I certainly appreciated that it was a white community, but, um, but a third of our town was Hispanic. Hmm. So they had imported a whole bunch of Hispanic people into town to do whatever jobs they imported them to do. Um, and because we were a big farming community as well, because we're in rural Illinois. And... Um, um, and it wasn't until I was in high school that I learned that like half of those folks were illegal. Um, at the time, like you don't, you grow up and you go to school, and a bunch of folks are there, and you're all friends. But um, like there was this big accident; folks died in like a car accident, and and we found out in the news that all these folks were illegal. But like, um, yeah, it was a weird place to grow up, like rural Illinois, and like you know, you get like thrust in all these news news issues and news items. I'm not sure I recognized it at the time, but. Mm-hmm. Um, and then tell us about the years leading up to Sun Ed. What were you up to? I know BP and... Yeah, so I learned about solar energy in high school and then went to college knowing I wanted to work in renewable energy. And so I got an engineering degree because when I interviewed like folks uh, in high school, like people said, well, you can't really work in renewable energy unless you have an engineering degree. So... Um, so I got an engineering degree. For those of you who know me, like I'm not the best engineer, so um, <laughs> it really wasn't like a great fit per se. But um, but I passed, and so that was that was good. Um, 
And I got I got lucky. I got an internship with um, Alan Barnett at Astropower uh, while I was in college. And so that was an awesome experience. And that's how I met, like, Howard Wenger and all those guys who, you know, are that Astropower Mafia, um, who then became, I think, the Sunpower Mafia. Mm-hmm. Um, but... Um, but yeah, no, I, the whole move was great. And then I worked for a wind energy company in Vermont and then moved back down to D.C. to be closer to my wife and then um, worked you know, as a Beltway Bandit uh, for Department of Energy and then, um, and then got the job at BP, um, which was like the most incredible thing you, you could ask for. So um, yeah, it was, it was a weird thing. It was one of those things, but back then, I remember like, applying for jobs out of college and it was just I think I just got the CIA like directory and I think I sent out like 143 you know resumes or whatever to everybody that would look right because nobody was hiring not in like 1996. What, so. what made BP such a good place to be? So BP at the time that I joined them had just bought Amico and Amico owned 50% of SolarX and um, SolarX for those of you who don't know is like basically the pioneer that basically invented polycrystalline uh, solar, right? So before that, pretty much everyone else did monocrystalline solar. Um, and um, and then they, interestingly enough, the other 50% was owned by Enron. So they bought the other 50% from Enron. And so after they bought it, they became the largest solar company in the world, right? So they were, I think we had 32 megawatts of total global production. Um, and, uh, and so it was extraordinary. And... Um, yeah, and it was, and so you can imagine, like, when you're the largest manufacturer in the world, like, all the consultants came through BP Solar, right? So Bob Johnson and Paula Mintz, who were, you know, by far the, like, most credible, like, forecasters in the industry at the time. And, and then, you know, like, all of the folks who had interesting pitches, like, any of the entrepreneurs who wanted, like, someone to buy their stuff, right, would come through. And so you saw the coolest stuff all the time. And not just in solar. I remember, like, we saw tons of fuel cell presentations and tons of wind energy presentations and, you know, and other things. And so it was the best place to work. And then when you work at the largest company, then, like, everyone takes your phone calls. So, like, when I would call people, they're like, oh, you're from Beefy Solar. I'll respond. And, you know, and I was, like, whatever, like, 26 or something or 25. So, like, wasn't even, like, they shouldn't have called me back, but they did anyway. <laughs> um, so, when, that was great. When did you first have the idea for SunEd? How old were you? Were you still at BP? Yeah, so I joined BP in December of 1999. I wrote the business plan for Sun Edison before that. So, I... Um, I, w- I did my MBA part-time um, at the University of Maryland, and it was for one of those classes. Um, and Sun Edison was a class project. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It was a class project. And I didn't get an F like the guys who are at FedEx or What'd whatever you get? else. Like, I got an A. But my, <laughs> you know, obviously. But who's, who's counting? I wasn't in engineering school anymore. Um, so, um, but I remember my professor saying to me, because this was like, um, I think 1998 or maybe it was maybe it was the first semester in 1999. Um, my professor was like, "This is a great business plan, you know, but there's no chance that it's going to get funded because, you know, like this is the dot com boom. Like everyone is just creating an internet website and then getting eyeballs and going public. Like, why would anyone invest in infrastructure projects, right? And so, so that's why, like, I you know put it on the shelf and got a job at BP, and it was a great choice to do that. But um, but but yeah, like it was like not anything that anyone wanted to hear about was like physical infrastructure. 
And when did you take the idea off the shelf and embark um, on that journey? Yeah. So in 2003, um, BP was going through this like massive restructuring. I remember like um, they've sent someone down from um, from London and, you know, he basically said, everyone's got to reapply for their job. And so I was like, well, this is a good time to get a package. And so then I, uh, <laughs> so I didn't apply for any jobs and, you know, they assigned me a job. I was like, what? <laughs> and, and so then um, I ended up having to quit and like actually start Sun Edison without a package. So, <laughs> so I, start, I left in September of 2003. Gotcha. And did you have co-founders at the time? Were you doing this on your own? So I started it in January of 03. Um, and then uh, my first phone call was to Chris Cook, um, who at the time was already sort of the you know, smartest guy in the country at regulatory affairs. Like he's just, I mean, he's still like the guy who like made net metering functional, invented all the SREC markets. Um, and so he was my first co-founder. And then, um, and then Claire Broido, who's now Claire Broido Johnson, um, um, had done an informational interview with us at BP. And I was like, well, everyone's applying for their own job, so I don't think it's going to work out for you. Um, but he, she was at Constellation and uh, formerly of Enron. And so I called her up, um, and so she joined soon after that. Um, and so the three of us started the company, and then Brian Robertson came on the next, the next year. Where did the money come from? Uh, my home equity line of credit. Nice. How did your wife feel about that? Uh, you know, honestly, she was extraordinary about it. So, like, um, I think, look, thinking back on it, like, I'm not sure we stressed out about it as much as we probably should have. Because um, <laughs> she was, like, making, like, no money. She was, um, she was, she had just graduated from her master's degree, and she was a um, presidential fellow at the Office of Management Budget, and I think it's like a GS seven position or GS nine position, and so like, like I think we were making like thirty grand a year or something, and we just bought a house, and obviously because we had this home equity line, and um, yeah, so I don't know what we were thinking, but um, it was a home equity line of credit, and then like we had like twenty grand of savings. Wow! And uh, how long before you raised capital for SunEd? Almost two years. I mean, we didn't raise our first round until. Um, well, our first official round was in 2006, but we raised a bunch of like angel money like in sort of May of 2005. How much? Do you remember how much an angel funding you raised? It was like 800,000 bucks or something. I remember like we had a bunch of legal bills to pay off after mm -hmm. we closed the Goldman um, fund, and um, and so there had been people who wanted to invest in us before then, and. You know, like, I mean, I, I mean, looking back on it, I think we were a little bit crazy. Like, I just, um, like, we just never got paid. So none of us actually took a yourselves. paycheck. Okay. Yeah, like, none of the four of us took a paycheck. And then um, we got a little bit of money here and there when we sold projects and that kind of stuff. But, like, um, yeah, I just, like, it, it, it never occurred to me that we didn't have any money. Like, I just remember, like, we got this um, law firm bill, and we were like, $350,000, that's crazy. Like, <laughs> we're not gonna pay that, right? And then, and then we're like, oh, I guess we do have to pay it. And so then we raised some angel money to pay it, but like, yeah. Gotcha. Um, and so you said, so it sounds like a lot of organic growth early on. Who were your first customers and how did you get them? So we signed up folks right away. The reason why I left um, BP and started St. Edison was that we, um, we had, closed Whole Foods in 
August of 2003. So then I was like, well, I guess we should start a company so we could actually, um, like, well, we had start, started the company in January, but we hadn't signed the operating agreement, so I didn't legally have the right to sign the contract, <laughs> and so we were like, oh, we should do that. Um, um, and so that's when I left and started the company. And then we signed Staples, like, the next month, and then Ikea a month after that. And so, like, it was, it was definitely, like, an idea whose time had come, because I think, you know, Powerlight, obviously, you know, was in business already. And I think they had done a lot of the work, right? They had gone to all these companies and said, hey, you should pay $2 million in cash for the solar system. And, um, and they convinced them that solar wasn't going to, like, you know, destroy their roof or set the building on fire or whatever it is that the customer was worried about. Mm -hmm. And so all we had to do was go in and say, well, here's how you can get past your CFO and (laughs) get it approved, right? And so I remember that's exactly what the first customer at Whole Foods wanted to do. He was just like, I really want to do this. And they keep telling me no. And I'm like, well, I think I can get them to say yes. And so then, you know, he signed the contract. And so um, so it, the customers came fast and furiously. Like um, the financing took forever, right? The financing took much longer, and we thought that would be faster with Goldman. Yeah, so that didn't close until 2005, and so we had some, a couple of high net worth individuals to do the first couple projects. Um, but, but yeah, like we didn't. Um, yeah, I, I would have thought that the customers would have been harder to get than the financing, mm-hmm. but it was the other way around. Gotcha. Uh, were you intentional about finance and business model innovation versus tech innovation? Did you think of it that way at the time? I know you think of it that way now. Um, yeah, you know, I don't, obviously, I, obviously I, I couldn't articulate it at the time. Um, but I certainly, I certainly understood, even from my internship at, at AstroPower, that we had all these customers who would like call us a lot. Like they would, like I remember this rancher in particular in like Oklahoma and he was like, I really want to buy solar. And these were five watt panels that we'd put on their fence to like electrify the fence. Um, Cause it was like, you know, 80,000 bucks to connect it to the grid, right? So, um, so we were cheaper. And I just remember like, as much as he wanted to buy the solar, like he was just like, I just can't do it this month, right? Like like my tractor just broke down and so like I got to fix that first and then this just happened and my son wants to go to like you know like summer camp or whatever it was like that was more important than buying the solar system right and so you could tell that there were all these people that were super like excited about buying renewable energy but that they didn't really have the ability to prioritize it in their like capital budget right and so i remember even when i talked to the cfo of um that region of Whole Foods, because um, Whole Foods was a very decentralized organization at the time. Um, and she was just like, $600,000, that's what it costs us to build a new Whole Foods. Like, why would we put solar on the roof when like, we could just build a new Whole Foods? And at the time, they were like building like one a month or something, um, or probably two a month. So yeah. Um, and as you're setting all this up and you're getting these amazing customers early on and growing somewhat organically, how do you know how to do all of this? I know you got an MBA and you got this engineering degree, but how did you know what to do? I stayed at a Holiday Inn like the night before. Um, That's the secret? Yeah. No, um, no, clearly I didn't know what I was doing, right? I mean, um, it's, it's, it's one of those weird things. Like, I mean, I, I have this now with, you know, we have this great team at Generate Capital and... Um, I get these questions from folks who, you know, work for us now. And, like, it's, it's one of those things where um, 
we don't have the answers. Like I remember Goldman said to me, like, um, well, what's the residual value of solar, right? And I was like, I don't know. And they're like, well, why don't you know? And I was like, well, because I don't think anyone's ever sold solar panels in a residual market because they last forever and people love them. And so, like, they don't really come down, right? So, um, so I remember, like, looking around the world for all the transactions, and I found, like, eight transactions, and I wrote them all up and said, well, here's what happened. And, like, it was like this resort in Belize that had installed this 110-kilowatt, like, solar system with Siemens panels, and then um, they got hit by a hurricane. And the Siemens panels, I think, were actually fine after the hurricane. There were, like, a few damaged ones, but the rest were fine. And Siemens, like, recertified them, and then we sold them in the secondary market. So we had, like, eight data points, and we wrote a big white paper and sent it to Goldman. Um, and we did that a lot. Like, there were just, like, all these questions that people asked. And I was like, uh, I don't know, but, like, we'll go find the answer, right? And we'll just go out and look it up and, like, write it up, right? And so, like, it, it wasn't um, – we just sort of, like, kept going through the process. Like, we just kept iterating um, until we got something done. And, and it, I, I don't know that people expect anything different from us, but we certainly weren't overwhelmed by – the process. We just were like, well, this is what it is. Like, you just keep working the problem until it gets solved. So, at you, you're figuring it out. You're making it, faking it until you make it, and then you get to the peak of SunEd. What does the peak look like? Well, I mean, I don't know that we actually hit a peak. I think you know the peak happened after I sold the company. But like, I think, um, <laughs> um, well, the thing about Sun Edison that was interesting to me was we never, we never took ourselves that seriously. Like I remember like, um, while I was CEO, we never paid for exhibitor space. Like I always thought that was odd. Like we'd go to like these like SPI or whatever else and people would have exhibit space. And I was like, what do you want me to do? Like sit in a chair for like two days and like wait for people to come by my booth. Like that doesn't make any sense. And so like, but, and then people would say to me, like, but Jigger, this is how you support the industry. Like, this is what you do. You have a booth, and it's nice, and then you do this stuff or whatever else. And, like, I just, like, I was so young. Like, I was 28, and I remember, like, everyone who worked for me was the same age as me. So we were all 28. And then, and like, and so, like, we never thought about, like, oh, like, you know, we should, like, we've, we, we've, like, we're more exciting now. We're, we've peaked. We should have a party here. We should, like, you know, have an exhibit or, like, whatever. Like, we just, like, we just, like, that wasn't interesting to us. Like, we just rolled up our sleeves and did stuff, right? And so, like, because at the time, I remember, like, there was tons of, policy getting passed, right? Like RPS standards were like going crazy, right? So you had the amendment in 2004, I think in um, Colorado, and then you had the New Jersey SREC market that was getting fixed, and um, the California, um, uh, in 2007, we had passed the CSI program, and we had like all this stuff that we were doing, and we just didn't have time to like celebrate our success. We were just like, like, always diving into some problem that we had to solve. I remember like for the California Solar Initiative, I don't know if any of you guys remember this, but the solar industry split into two halves, right? Like like they couldn't get along. And so there was um, ASPV, it's like Americans for Solar Power or something. And then there was like this other group, like, um, I don't know what it was called, but like SIA or something. And, <laughs> and, and so there were two different groups like lobbying the state of California. And we were the only company that was allowed to be members of both groups. Like nobody else was allowed because they hated each other so much. Like the other group, like they wouldn't allow cross, um, cross like 
membership. The only reason they allowed us is because they wanted access to Chris Cook. And we're like, well, the only way you could do that is if we're members of both organizations. And, um, and so, yeah, like, I don't remember us, like, ever, like, thinking that we had hit sort of peak Sun Edison. Like, mm -hmm. I remember us just, like, slogging, like, mm -hmm. every day. Mm -hmm. In true startup form, um, how many employees, what was the, the top number of employees, or that, the total number of employees? I don't know, actually. I think it, it, we were definitely, like, over 500. And because um, if you remember, like, the contractor industry was so unreliable. Like, I remember, like, when we built our first project like we hired this contractor and then they just didn't show up and we were like well why didn't you show up well because we had a cash sale and so we did that one first and we just decided not to like like do yours and um <laughs> and so like so it was just like crazy and so i remember calling up my friend brian jacklick and like at the end of 2004 we merged with new vision technologies um, which was, you know, one of the leading providers in uh, Southern California. So that's why Sun Edison was so huge in SCE's territory and not PG&E's territory. It was because we, like, had, we had merged with New Vision Technologies, and so we were like, well, we might as well just focus on Southern California Edison, mm -hmm. right? And, um, and then I remember we won the California Power Authority bid, which was, like, the largest contractor, contract of all time. It was, like, 3.2 megawatts or something. <laughs> and... Um, and um, um, and so then we bought Team Solar because they were up in Sacramento and we needed like folks in the Northern California. And then we just kept buying contractors because like we just couldn't get them to focus on our stuff mm -hmm. unless mm -hmm. like we bought them. And so so then <laughs> like I think we were like we bought five contractors and then and then we just kept hiring people and stuff. And it wasn't until 2007, maybe I mean, like the end of 2007 that people started becoming reliable and being like, Oh, you're actually a valued customer. We would love to like serve you and like, you know, like build projects for you, et cetera. And so then, then we just like we had attrition. Like we, like you know, like it, no matter how good of an employer you are, like in the contractor world, it's like, you know, their brother like is building a house, and they're like, hey, why don't you come help me build a house? And then you lose them, and so we just stopped replacing people who like left. Um, and then you know, then we had our project managers left, and then we you know went that way. But yeah, it, I mean, it was it. It was it was so weird though. I remember like, I remember having conversations about like healthcare. People were like, like, wait, what are we doing? Like, why are we doing? I mean, it's still like I still have these conversations today. I'm like, why am I responsible for healthcare? Um, like, it makes no sense that like I have to have some PhD in like all these like healthcare plans. Um, but like, yeah, and I was like, and I remember like them telling me like, oh, we have 453 people, and I'm like, what? How do we get the money, people? Um, <laughs> and like, yeah, and everyone like was like like needed Kaiser. And I was like, who cares? You don't live in California. You don't know. You got to have Kaiser. I'm like, okay, I guess we have to have Kaiser. Like that's sort of how it is. Like, but it was like all the sorts of weird stuff like that that we had to like go through. Gotcha. And at that point, how much capital had you raised? So our first round was. Um, in in June of 2006, and so um, Vantage Point came to us and really wanted to fund us, and um, we were like, well, we don't need the money, but then my business partner said, well, when they offer you money, you should take it. So it's okay. Um, so then, so then, um, so then our board was like, well, let's look around, and Riverstone offered us a term sheet, and then, and then Goldman had already told us that they didn't want to give us money. Um, but then when we got to the finish line with Riverstone and Vantage Point, they're like, okay, fine, we'll fund you. So then, so then we took Goldman's money and um, 
was not my first choice, but sort of is what it is. Um, and, and so that was 26.1 million, um, which I don't know why we needed that much money, but like, um, was that the first round you, the first real the first round you raised yeah. was 26. Yeah. And so it landed in our bank account and then we had to like, I remember our banker coming to us saying, well, we have to do cash management strategies. And I was like, what is that? And they're like, we invest it for you in like money market funds and stuff like that. So that like, it's not sitting there making $0 and yeah, it was like, it was a little crazy. Um, but it came in handy because then we built the Alamosa project. And at the time, like construction financing and all that stuff mm-hmm. was really difficult. So we basically built it on balance sheet. Hmm. Wow. And then like we had two investors fall through before we had like Union Bank of California that funded it. Um, so I was lucky we had all that money because mm-hmm. otherwise we wouldn't have been able to finish the project on time. Mm-hmm. Um, so it came in handy. So post rolling in the dough, tell us about the beginning of the end and why you left. In just a second, you're going to hear why Jigger Shaw left Sun Edison. First, a quick break here to talk about money. That's not such a bad thing to break for. You want money. I want money. That's what this whole conversation is about, getting money to build your business. Well, C-Power's customers, they don't write checks to C-Power. C-Power writes checks to them. C-Power's mission is to help its customers monetize their energy assets through demand-side management programs. There's all sorts of flavors of demand-side management, and they can help you navigate that in open energy markets and make use of all the assets that you have on your building or that you're thinking of installing. Um, It's really incredible what you can do with all these assets now. And C-Power understands how to navigate the markets and how to help control your assets so that you are getting every last dollar of value that you can. And again, your accounting department is going to start getting checks for energy, not sending out checks for energy. That's pretty incredible. And if you're the, uh, you know, if you're the CFO or you're in the financial side of the business, they're going to be giving you hugs every day. C-Powered, you know, they, they, they offer this really holistic strategy of engineering, analysis, market intelligence, performance solutions in open energy markets to basically help you earn and operate more efficiently. So you're happy, the environment's happy, and your CFO is happy. Or if you are the CFO, you're going to be pretty damn happy too. So find out how you can save, earn, and reach your green energy goals at cpowerenergymanagement.com. That's cpowerenergymanagement.com. Um, well, it, it wasn't really a beginning of an end as much as like, so we had a weird board. I mean, Goldman turned out to be just one of the worst board members of all time. And um, um, How do you really feel? Oh, they all know how I really feel. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah. I, there's probably still stuff, stuff I probably can't talk about. But, um, or the Goldman Illuminati will come after me. Um, but, um, Can someone yeah. tweet that, please? Yeah. So, um, so, yeah. So, like, I remember um, they were like, well, you can't really be CEO anymore because you're too young. And so then they brought in someone else, and then he was awful. And so then we... Um, laid him off and like we should have gone public in 2007 but like which is when everybody else went public and we could have but then because of all the drama that Goldman created like we couldn't really do it and so then we were ready to go public in like July of 2008 and so we filed we almost filed our S1 and then like the week that we were going to file our S1 we um, the financial crisis happened right so then we're like well that kind of sucks so so then, like, you know, things just kept going. And, like, 
you know, I started becoming a little smarter about how like venture capital works and that kind of stuff. And so, so then I was like, oh, this money is a pref above me, right? And so I have common shares and they have preferred shares. And okay, well, what happens in, in the financial crisis if they, if we sell the company? And they're like, well, you know, these guys get paid first and then you get paid second. And, and I'm like, okay, well, that's interesting. And so then, then all of these investors were like, well, Jigger, we need to raise a lot more money, right? And I was like. That doesn't sound like a good idea because then I have even more money in front of me in the pref, right? Well, they didn't really love to hear it, so then I had to leave the company, and because otherwise, like, like I would have voted against it and whatever. It didn't make a lot of sense, and so, so then um, I had already been talking to MEMC, and so I said, well, we should just sell to you guys, and so, um, but then like. Nabil left and Ahmad came in, and so then I had to repitch Ahmad, and um, and it worked out, and then I had to like force all the rest of the shareholders to go along with me because Goldman was blocking. And so then, like, we did the drag-along thing. Like, it was amazing how many, like, terms I learned in this process. Um, and, and we sold the company out from underneath, like, Goldman and those guys, right? And so, and I think it was a great, it was, it was, it was a good, it was a good move. But, like, I had to leave in order to do that because you can't really be a fiduciary on the board and, you know, sell the company out from underneath the investors. Mm-hmm. And then what'd you do next? I know Carbon War Room, and then obviously now Generate, but tell us about the path there. Yeah, so after I left um, Sun Edison, like, people kept calling me to do, like, the same thing again. And I was like, I just didn't think that was, like, the right thing to do. Like, I remember, like, folks would call me and say, hey, why don't you set up the solar division for our company or whatever it was? And that didn't seem that interesting. Um, And so, you know, I took some time off, and... um, I got a call from a recruiter, and they said, hey, you know, Richard Branson's starting this thing called the Carbon Morum. You know, would you be interested? And I was like, well, that seems like something different and new. And I had been on the board of Greenpeace for, the, for like three years before that or two years before that. So um, I had been somewhat familiar with the muckraking process. Um, and, um, yeah, and so I took the job, and it was, it was like, it was crazy. It was like... Yeah, well, you know, I mean, like running Powerhouse, like, you know, like when you're running these kinds of organizations, whether they're a for-profit, you know, or a non-profit, like if they act like a non-profit, then you're basically just raising money all the time. And I was like, wow, this is exhausting. Um, you're like constantly meeting rich people, being nice to them, even though they're like probably not nice to you. And <laughs> like, you know, and you're like, you know, like, like I really want your money, so I'm going to bite my tongue. Um, so... Um, but we did some really great work. I mean, you know, like a lot of, I would say the, like, a lot of the things that I like am most known for sort of saying or believing came out of that process. Mm-hmm. Um, because to, to raise money for a nonprofit, you really have to have like conviction and your pitch has to be good and all those things. Um, and so, so it was a really great experience. And we really did have this huge impact. Because, um, you know, like it's, it's difficult for folks to, I think, remember but like during the Copenhagen process, which is what everyone was building up to in 2009, it was like a shared sacrifice thing, right? It was like for a cup of coffee a month, like we can solve the climate change problem. And for those of you who like may think that that idea resonates, like you have to remember that there are, you know, billions of people that live without electricity or running water or other things, right? And saying to them, well, like you have to pay an extra cup of coffee a month to like actually you know like decarbonize the planet is fairly insulting um 
And so we we had a point of view very early on that like the technology like in these revolutions have never really been a bad thing for GDP and growth and income and and employment and those things. And so I think we were the first ones to like sort of say that in ways that were unequivocal. And it was at the time I remember it was deeply offensive. We got like all these like I mean, they weren't death threats, so I'm not like, you know, I'm not like Katy Perry or something like that. <laughs> you know, they get like death threats. But like, no, but like they, like, um, but we would get these nasty grams, like, because Wax and Marky was happening at the time, and we were like, well, that's stupid. And this, uh, and so like, so like, you know, so we just had to keep our mouth shut, right? And which is fine. And, um, and so, but like our whole thing was that, like, that you have all these aunt entrepreneurs and innovators and other folks and they're not really being given a chance to like to sell their stuff right and and so you know Richard Branson being like the most famous entrepreneur in the world we were like well why don't we set up the nonprofit to like actually like help these entrepreneurs succeed because when Richard like hired me to the Carbon I think I got like a napkin at the Virgin Lounge that said, like, here's what the carbon worm's about. So, like, we had to, like, come up with what it was going to be about. Um, and so that's what we decided on. And it was, it was like, it was so inspiring, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, thousands upon thousands of entrepreneurs that were doing things, like, from making ships more efficient to, like, building efficiency, obviously, and solar and those kinds of things, but, like, water and other things. And, and they were just being held back, mostly because people just... Like, it's not a consumer good, right? Like, you actually need the government to, like, buy in and other things. And so, and by the end of the process, when the Paris Agreement occurred, like, everyone was using our talking points. Like, we were the ones who coined, like, largest wealth creation opportunity of our lifetime, like, you know, creating climate wealth, all that stuff. Like, those are all things that Richard said out of his mouth. And then, you know, like, I think we had 65 heads of state that used those words at Paris, right? So, um it does matter, like the way that this is framed, I think does matter. And um, yeah, so I'm really proud of that. And all of these experiences from BP to, uh, to SunEd to Carbon Worm and now to Generate, what lessons took the longest to learn and what do you think the entrepreneurs in the room and those listening need to know about building a company? Well, uh, you know, there's a lot of lessons. Um, I think one of the first lessons that I learned was that like everyone matters, and it's amazing to me how many people treat people like they don't matter. Um, and you know, like obviously we were just talking before about how, like I met Dan Rosen when he was in high school, at, like you know in New Jersey, and I met Billy Parrish when he was running like you know Students for Environmental Action, right? And and I wasn't a you know dick to them when I met them. Um, <laughs> Like, I treated them with respect, and I didn't know they were going to start Mosaic in the future or whatever else. Like, I just think that people should be nice to people. And I remember, like, just, like, like I never had a problem. Like, even when I was CEO of Sun Edison and, like, you know, like, we had supposedly become somebody that, like, folks, like, looked up to. Like, like I never had a problem giving people business cards. Like, it was amazing how many people I meet that, like, are always out of business cards. Um, and um, so that stuff was a big deal. I think... The experience with Goldman was amazing. Like, I mean, obviously we had our, our negative points on the other side, but like, um, like, I was never afraid of working with really smart people. Like, people that obviously were way smarter than I am, and like, were like asking me tons and tons of questions that I didn't know the answers to. I can relate. Um, yeah, and but that didn't scare me. Like, it's amazing to me how many people um, in this 
um, field like take really dumb money, right? Really dumb money, right? Like they go to like impact investors or they go to like, you know, some family office, high net worth individual. And they're like, yeah, here's $100,000. And then you're like, but they don't know anything about your business. They're just sort of like you and you gave a good TED talk and whatever it is that like <laughs> you did to give money. And like, but they don't actually help you succeed, right? Like, and like you should want somebody who is so smart that they're asking you really tough questions, right? That they're telling you, wow, your business model doesn't make any sense at all. Like, you really should like revamp it, right? Otherwise, you waste two and a half years of your life and you fail and then you're like, oh God, what could I have done better? Like, well, you should have had somebody who was actually like, like writing you, like saying like, hey, like this doesn't make sense. Like explain yourself here, et cetera, right? And so we always used really smart money and like even at Generate, we have a really, super smart board that asks really tough questions that holds us to a very high standard. And we relish that because that's how you become like better at what you do. Um, I'm sure there's lots of other lessons that I learned along the process, but like, um, like HR is a big deal. Like it's amazing how many people like, um, treat HR like it's a, like, like a function. Like, and so like we always had HR as like, part of like the executive management team, like in every meeting. Um, it's actually been really hard to find the head of talent for Generate, but we're working pretty hard to fill that. But like it's, um, but yeah, like that was such a huge deal for Sun Edison and like for Carbon Warham. Like I remember my board being like, why do you have somebody that does HR? Like I was like, cause it's really important. And yeah, so that's like a big lesson. Speaking of things that are important, when we were talking about this interview, I said, is there anything other than kind of standard questions that I should ask? And you said, yeah, let's talk about women. So let's talk about women. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it's it's one of those things where I learned early on that like, I mean, because Claire was a, you know, is a founder of um, Sun Edison that, um, like, I don't know that I appreciated it at the time, don't get me wrong, but like, I certainly noticed that, you know, every conference was a sausage fest and um, and I was like, you know, something's a little weird here. We should probably like diversify. Um, and then like we got really good at Sun Edison. I think when I was there, we were probably up to like 30, 35 percent women, which you know obviously is not 50-50, but it was far better than the energy industry and certainly the solar industry. And um, and like you know, I spent a lot of time thinking about it. And I remember thinking like, it's not because we tried to hire women. Right. Like th there's this like notion that you're like, oh, like, you know, it's like Mitt Romney sort of binders full of women. Um, <laughs> like it was more just that because Claire was a founder of Sun Edison, like she naturally networked with other women. And so every time we had like a great job opening, she always had great candidates to fill it with. Right. And um and, and so I think that people really do it wrong, right? People, like, they're always trying to fix the problem. They're like, oh, we should hire more women. And I'm like, no, you should just, like, you know, like, have more women in your executive management team so that they're networking with women, and then you find really smart women that way, and, like, you hire them. Like, it's just, like, I've, I've always found it to be very weird, right? Like, the whole way in which we talk about this, like, using numbers, like as though it's some sort of like slots to be filled or something. Mm -hmm. So, um, no, I mean, even Generate, I think we've tried really hard. We, we've, you know, struggled um, just because we are three male founders. Um, but I think we've like started to correct that with senior, um, with senior women coming into the company. Mm -hmm. 
So we're going to move into our high-voltage round, a slightly extended high-voltage round, uh, starting with the question, if you were an animal, what animal would you be? Not what animal do you want to be, what animal would you be? What animal would I be? Um, probably a hippo. <laughs> <laughs> Hippos, people don't know. Hippos are vicious. They're vicious, and I really like being in the water all day. And so, <laughs> Perfect. Like, I think it would be good, yeah. Perfect. Um, some would describe you as maybe a provocative or potentially controversial figure in clean energy. What would you say to that? Um, well, here's the thing is like when you started a company like I did and like you had like no money and like, I mean, there were days where I was like choosing which meals to eat and that kind of stuff. Like not suggesting for a moment that I was poor, like that's a different thing, but there were definitely like times when I was like, I don't have any money in my pocket. Um, and like, I just think it's obnoxious when people in our industry are constantly cheerleading the industry when folks are like betting their houses on starting companies in this sector, right? Like, what, like most developers in this in this industry, like you know, like the way that they do their land options or interconnection studies or whatever, is through their savings, right? Like, it's not like they all have big angel investors with venture capital behind them or whatever else, like to do that stuff. And I just think it's ridiculous when people just lie to people, right? And so I guess maybe I'm provocative, but I, but it's more just that I. I feel really bad that like folks get bad information from people and then they're like betting their like, you know, family's wealth on bad information. Uh, what have you found consistently most inspiring? Well, you know, it's, it's our industry, right? I mean, it's not entrepreneurs per se, it's really our industry. Like what shocks me the most, and Shale and I have had this conversation several times in the past, like, like green tech media is always wrong to the downside as to where the market's gonna be, right? And they're like, well, you know, that's just our safety premium or whatever it is. And I'm like, no, you just don't believe in our people, right? Like, like our industry always figures out how to innovate its way out of the problems, right? Like, so whether it's the section 201 credits or whether it's this or that or net metering going down in, in Nevada or like, we always figure out how to solve whatever problems are in front of us. So like I was at this utility meeting the other day and they were bitching about PERPA, right? And I was like, we didn't write PERPA. That was like written in the 70s. And then like we all like did our work and got these land options and did all this interconnection. And then we've like you said no to signing a PPA with us. So then we went around and figured out PERPA. And we like and you left it at 8.3 cents a kilowatt hour for 20 years. It wasn't our fault. We didn't like set it at 8.3 cents a kilowatt hour in Oregon. And so then we got this really high price contract, right? Like, like that's awesome. That's our industry, right? Like and I'm inspired by that every day, right? Like we don't let like, you know, this law or this person or, you know, this initiative like get in our way. We just keep innovating around all the problems that we have and we keep getting better and better. And I just, I just think it's inspiring every day. When have you failed? Uh, you know, like honestly, like I don't think in those terms, like, um, the biggest thing I failed on, like, in a really big way was, um, was like, you know, I got married very young. So um, I got married when I was 25. And so when you start Sun Edison and you do all these things, like, 
there are days when you're like on the road like 70% of the time and um, and you start taking your family for granted and that kind of stuff and that really sucks and I definitely failed as a husband for a little while and um, I'm making it up making it up now if you had to start a new career tomorrow what would it be oh I don't know I mean it's the only thing I know Fair. I mean, Fair. you know what I mean? Like, it's it's one of those things where um, people ask me all the time, like, Jigger, like, how did you learn finance? I'm like, I don't know that I still know finance. Like, <laughs> it's it's the weirdest thing. I have these two fantastic partners at Generate. And, um, Shout out to Scott. Yeah. And, and, like, they are always, like, innovating on these, like, term sheets and, like, these agreements like we raise money and da 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 and like they're like oh what's this and I'm like I don't even know what half these provisions mean like they have these like big long term sheets and contracts and whatever else and I'm like well Jigger you don't understand like they could do this they could do that etc else like that to me is finance right like like what I'm really good at is sales right like that's what I do it's like sales but people are like Jigger you're a finance guy I'm like no I'm the guy who like got Whole Foods or Staples or whatever else to like sign the contract and and then, like, it generated, I'm like, I'm the guy who, like, convinces the entrepreneurs to trust us with, you know, and take our money. But, like, I don't know that I'm, like, the finance guy, right? Like, it's the weirdest thing, like, um, what you get labeled as. Um, so my parents are divorced, and I know what pre-divorce conversations look like. And so I'm wondering if you and your Energy Gang co-host, Stephen Lacey, are going to get divorced. <laughs> are you and Stephen going to get divorced? <laughs> you know, um... No, we're okay, not going to get divorced. Okay, we good. have a tremendous amount of respect for each other. My, you know, my big thing is that, like, like as we talked about in this, like, flash round, like, I, I hate false equivalency, right? And, like, reporters, like, have to do that. And it just irks the crap out of me. Like, I am politically ambiguous, right? Like, I am not, like, this hardcore Democrat or Republican, and, and Facebook actually accuses me of being a, a hardcore Republican, which is interesting. Um, but um, I don't know if you guys know this, but, like, Facebook, like, you know, like, categorizes you, and you can see mm -hmm. where they categorize you. Mm -hmm. So I thought that was interesting. Um, and so, like, it's just, it's one of those weird things where, like, I can't stand, like, where you give both sides, like, equal credibility in an argument. Because like some sides like actually have real credibility and other sides don't, and then like and it's not always the same polarity. Um, but like you know, like Stephen makes me like discuss both sides anyway, and it bothers me. <laughs> we we know. <laughs> okay, to close it out, finish these sentences for me. Companies fail because they don't have good products. Success is making a difference. My biggest regret is? I don't have any. Like, honestly, like, you know, I know this is supposed to be a fast round, but like, <laughs> I don't love that conversation because it's sort of like saying like, like, I could have done something different, right? Like, I couldn't, right? Like, I made the best decision with the facts that I had at the time which I had them, and I don't like regret any of the decisions that I made. Some of them turned out to not be that great, but, like, all along the way, we had these extraordinary experiences, right? Like, I mean, Sun Edison, like, by far had the largest impact in the United States on, like, catapulting the solar industry, whether it was, we had, like, at one point, we had 
50% of all the full-time regulatory affairs staff in the country working for us, right? Like, I mean, like, it was just, like, it was an amazing time. Do I regret having that many people, like, in regulatory affairs? No. Like, we had, like, I remember, like, like, version 32 of our contract, like, every got leaked by Walmart. And, like, and everyone started using it. Like, and I was like, well, that sucks. Like, you know, that was, like, our intellectual property. But, like, do I regret it? No. Like, I love the fact that everyone's, like, using a financeable contract now or whatever else. Like, it's just, like, like, there are lots of things I could have done differently. But, like, I think I did the best with what I could. I'm most proud of... I'm most proud of all the people that I've worked with, right? Like, I mean, today, like looking at all the people across the industry that, you know, like came through Sun Edison and worked for me at a time, or like, um, like some of them are running for Congress. Like, that's awesome. For sure. To build a successful startup, what it takes is... It, you know, it takes a level of humility around, like, what you're really trying to do, right? It's just, you know, like, it is so easy to fail, you know? And, and I know that, like, particularly, like, no, no place like the Bay Area, like, glorifies entrepreneurship and glorifies all these things. But, like, it is so easy to fail. And it's not, it's not like, your fault. Like, it's just, like everyone's out to get you, you know? Like, the market doesn't come together like you thought, like the strategic partner that you said that, said that they were gonna like, like, you know, close with you before you left your job to like, you know, start the company, like doesn't close. Like, it's all really, really hard. And I just think that folks have to like give themselves a break and really like understand how hard it is and like be humble about the process. On that note, please give a big round of applause to Jacob Shaw. Let's give a hat tip and a round of applause to Emily Kirsch, too, for conducting that interview and all the other great interviews in the What It Takes series. And also just the folks at Powerhouse who help collaborate with GTM on producing this series. Uh, go to powerhouse.solar for more information on events and uh, what that organization is up to. It's one of the most dynamic ecosystems for intelligent energy companies. So go check them out. And if you like what you hear, make sure to listen to all of our other What It Takes interviews with some of the most successful people in clean tech. To hear those interviews, you can um, hear them on both The Interchange, which is the podcast I produced with Shale Khan. That's um, more of a long-form interview podcast. If you don't subscribe to that, please be sure to check it out. And you can hear some of the What It Takes interviews there. And, of course, subscribe to The Energy Gang. I'm sure you already are a subscriber. But uh, just in case, you can find us on any platform where you get podcasts. The gang will be back together later this week. So we will talk to you then. Lots to discuss as usual. For now, I'll leave it there. I'm Stephen Lacey. This is The Energy Gang and What It Takes from Green Tech Media and Powerhouse. Powerhouse.